In the radical product thinking way, strategy has four steps. And the easy to remember mnemonic is radical or RDCL. The R is for real pain points, meaning understanding what's the pain that, that makes someone come to your product. The D is the design or the solution for that pain. The C is the capabilities. This is maybe the underlying infrastructure, the technical infrastructure, IP that you have, partnerships that you're building. And the last thing is logistics. This is where you think about the business model, how you're going to sell the product, how you might train people on it, etc. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around fashion and product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! And welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled to have with us today Radhika Dutt, and she is the author of Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter, which has been translated into several languages, including Chinese and Japanese. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, she is also an entrepreneur. She's a product leader. She's participated at this point in four acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. She advises different organizations ranging from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products that create fundamental change. She's currently advisor on product thinking to the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is Singapore Central Bank and Financial Regulator. She also serves on the board of the Association of Product Professionals and the independent publisher Barrett Kohler. Radhika has built products in a wide range of industries, including broadcast, media, entertainment, telecom, advertising tech, government, consumer apps, robotics, and even wine. Uh, we'll get to hear a little bit about those. And she graduated from MIT uh, with an SB and master's in engineering and electrical engineering and speaks nine languages. Wow, that is a lot. Radhika, thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you, uh, where are you zooming in from? I'm here from Boston. So thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're thrilled to have you. I, I'm very much looking forward to hearing about your story, hearing about your book, hearing about, I mean, at this point, actually, the book has been out in publish, uh, published for over a year, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, just over a year, actually. We just marked the first birthday. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> How's that first year been compared to what you expected? You know, it's been truly so rewarding. There are so many people who have reached out saying that it made a real difference to how they think about products. Um, and there was one talk I was giving where I was talking about um, equity and how do we create equity with our products? You know, just the whole book is about how do we create change starting with a very clear vision and how do we translate that systematically into reality but one of the elements of that was how do you use the superpower to not do bad things uh, and how we can accidentally do bad things so one of the most rewarding uh, pieces of feedback i got was someone who said to me at the end of a talk that wow you know this made me think differently i hadn't thought about some of the unintended consequences of my product because we typically think of that only for big companies like facebook or google or something like that but uh, getting people to think about their product as a mechanism for change for their users, um, that, that's felt really rewarding when people have recognized that. Absolutely. Well, and hopefully everyone who's listening today will walk away thinking about that as well for the products that they manage. 
So Radhika, tell me a little bit about, you know, becoming an author. I mean, was that something I'm just curious, did you think that that was in your, in your, uh, in your future at any point? Were you one of those people who thought, yeah, I'd like to write, I would love to be an author, or is this something that came about pretty unexpectedly? Yeah, goodness gracious. No, I never thought of myself as a writer. I mean, all I remember of my high school English classes was all the red ink on my pay on, on my essays, right? Like, I think my English teacher ensured that I would never think I'm going to write a book. <laughs> so, so what brought this about? Uh, no, I look back, I do love my English teacher. <laughs> but what, what brought about a book? Um, it was the fact that, you know, all through my career, uh, I felt like I had heard, just learned some really tough lessons, some hard lessons um, in how to build products. And, you know, as I had grown in my career, um, I had experienced what I now call product diseases. I'd caught some of them. I'd learned from them, I'd gotten better at building products. And then, you know, when I worked in more of leadership positions later in my career, I was watching others or other companies suffer through those same product diseases I felt like I'd learned from. And so the question that really bubbled up for me was, you know, is it that we're all just doomed to learn from trial and error or uh, is there a way that we can learn to be better product people? Um, you know, in, is there a step-by-step -step process that each of us can really absorb? Like, can I share my hard lessons in a way that it's not just describing my hard lessons, but a framework that really avoid helps you avoid those problems. And so that's where radical product thinking was born. Um, because what I realized was, you know, Everything that I learned in terms of hard lessons was that it's not clear how do you translate an idea into concept very systematically. If you think about just what Silicon Valley model, what the Silicon Valley model teaches you, it's that, oh, just try things, put things in the market, see what works, fail fast, and then you keep going from there. But if we think about reality, that's not how it works you know, you have literally two to three pivots or two to three mistakes before you lose money or momentum. As a startup, like you can't do more than two to three pivots. Like really, it's very hard to get that much funding. Even if you have that funding, your team at some point decides you have no idea what you're doing and it's time to move on, right? And so if, if that's not the answer, like let's just try things and see what works, then like what was the process to systematically translate vision into reality? And so that's what most of us as you know product leaders, that's what we learn over time, this intuition. But it's so easy to make mistakes. Like there are often breaks in the chain when you're going from vision to action. And that's where product diseases creep in. And that's where this need for radical product thinking came about, that what we need is the step-by-step -step process. And so we launched Radical Product Thinking as a free toolkit, and it's still on the website as a free toolkit, radicalproduct.com. And that's where the need for the book came about, because so many people wrote to me saying, can you just show me how this is filled out or walk me through how it's filled out? And so that's what the book helps you do. It really systematically guides you towards thinking about how you can translate vision into your everyday actions. That's fantastic. And we'll make sure that we put that website in the show notes so that anyone who is listening and wants to go to it can, can go and visit it. I think one thing that would be great is maybe for you to tell us a, a story or two about the, how those product diseases impacted you as a professional, right? As a product, um, you know, leader, as a product, um, 
you know, whether it was as a product manager or, you know, a director, et cetera, like how did it show up in your life? Um, because that, that might help other people spot those diseases in their lives. Hmm. So I'll talk about a couple of diseases that I've experienced, but I also want to talk about one aspect, which is that as a product manager, you want to take on a more strategic role, but very often you walk into a company situation where you're told, oh, don't worry about the vision and strategy. We're, we've thought about that at an executive or leadership level. I just need you to execute on this. You're rolling your eyes and you've clearly seen this before. So, so, you know, the second aspect, aside from product diseases, is my personal experience of how do you get out of that situation where you're being told, you know, don't worry yourself about this strategy, just here are the set of requirements that I really need you to deliver to what then right. And so the two things that you'll see about the toolkit is that one, it is all designed to be a set of communication tools, so that you can really take ownership of the vision. And you can start to introduce these concepts to your stakeholders, kind of almost under the radar. It's very sort of uh, non-threatening. So, you know, I just want to get your feedback in terms of priorities, but here's how I'm thinking about it. Here's the vision, and here's how I'm thinking about short term. And based on this, here's how I've prioritized things. And you drop this X and Y axis on the board. All of a sudden, you draw this X and Y axis on the board of vision versus survival. Now you're in control of this conversation. You're talking at a higher level, talking about the vision, talking about short term needs, and you're kind of facilitating the conversation. So that is one of the key, you know, personal experiences that I had where, you know, I really needed to kind of um, be able to take on a more strategic role. And so a lot of this toolkit is, is guided towards that. And now I'll talk about some of the product diseases and, you know, the mistakes that I made where I felt like this is why we needed like the step-by-step -step process. So one of the first product diseases that I ran into was at the very first company that I founded. Um, so this company was called Lobby 7. And I'll tell you, our vision at the time was revolutionizing wireless. <laughs> <laughs> and so that sounds like a lot of, you know, startups and the kind of vision statements they have, right? Like disrupting blah, blah, or, uh, you know, reinventing blah, blah to be a billion dollar company. That's not a vision. So if you ask me, what were you doing in revolutionizing wireless? Well, honestly, even we didn't know at the time. Um, this was, and so we were figuring it out along the way. Um, so what did we actually do? We ended up building, this was back in 2000, an early version of Siri so that you could interact with your device using voice or text. But as you can see, you know, like we were about at about 10 years too early to market, right? Um, and so the first disease that we had caught was what I call hero syndrome. This whole idea of revolutionizing wireless, it was all about going big, like go big or go home kind of a, a picture. You know, it was all about scaling. Um, and so finding those big clients, those big logos to put on our website, and it's all focusing on going big and scaling to the point where you even forget like, what's the problem you're actually trying to solve? 
Um, and so what we built was really interesting technology. The company did get acquired by uh, Scansoft, which now is Nuance. But you know what? It wasn't a life-changing acquisition for us um, because like, there wasn't a real need, a real problem we were solving. So that's an example of hero syndrome. Uh, and you know, so many startups face this, by the way, when we're measuring uh, or validating our problem based on whether or not we get funding. Because we got funding at the time. And so we felt like we were on the right track, you know, because there were people who believed in this. So that's one example. I'll give you one more example of a product disease, uh, one that I have actually contributed to myself, right? And I know that we see this so often. It's called obsessive sales disorder. So obsessive sales disorder is what happens when your salesperson comes to you and they have this excitement and glimmer in their eye and they go, you know, if you just add this one custom feature, we can win this mega client. And so you're thinking, well, this sounds mostly harmless. They promised that we're only going to turn it on for this one client. <laughs> and so we say, yeah, let's just do this, <laughs> right? And uh, so pretty soon by the end of the year, you're sitting with a stack of contracts and your entire roadmap is driven by all these different features you have to make good on and then continue supporting over time. Um, so that's an example of obsessive sales disorder where we're thinking about the short-term survival while winning that deal, right? And But maybe it's not good for this vision. So remember that XY axis I talked about. We'll talk more about that afterwards, but this is an example of you know, what I call vision debt. And we take on a lot of vision debt over time and it leads to obsessive sales disorder. I love the term vision debt. And I think we should expand on that a bit more, right? And one of the things that I actually would be curious about, you talk about in your book, um, kind of the laddering up of, uh, of visions, right? And how different teams, um, I think if I remember correctly, you were citing the uh, Singapore and the many government offices, each with their own vision and how each was in, you know created and it was up and down the hierarchy. And this is something that I've seen at, um, bigger companies where they either don't have, so they have the overall product vision if they're lucky, uh, hopefully, um, but the individual teams haven't considered how their visions ladder up to it, or they have done that. However, it's in a fast changing space and it's hard to keep up with it all, right? How, I mean, I would imagine if you've got, you know, multiple teams, each with their own vision statements, they ladder up to the overall product vision. Um, and each of those teams are making decisions on things uh, potentially around these different diseases. You could end up with quite wonky, uh, I guess, vision debt. Talk to us about like things that you, you would recommend, ways that you kind of manage that vision almost as a living you know, artifact that has to be kind of kept current. Like wh what, do you, what would you say to people struggling with that? Yeah, what you brought up, this idea of cascading visions is so important, right? And, and exactly what you said, where the product vision, if you're very lucky, you have one, but most likely, even if you have a product vision, the way it's written today is something that's really broad and fluffy, so it's hard to do anything with it. So I think that's the first starting point that we have to change. So we need a really detailed vision. So what should a detailed vision cover? It has to answer the who, what, why, when, and how. So the first thing is, whose world are you trying to change? 
it's not everyone. Um, and you know, this is where like, especially if your product has, let's say buyers and sellers connected to it. The big question is, wait, you know, am I not tar targeting both? And the answer is no, like we always have to pick a side. This doesn't mean that you'll ignore the other side. We will take care of their needs. And I can talk about that in a moment, but first think about whose world are you really setting out to change? And you'll need the support of the other party, but we'll get to that. Think first about like whose world are you trying to change? So that's the who. Then the what, like what exactly is their problem? Um, and why did, and, and what are they doing today to solve it? So describing their problem statement. The third is the why, meaning why does that problem absolutely need to be solved? Why is the status quo unacceptable? And if we cannot answer that, then there's no need for our product really. Then we can say, when, which is when can we say mission accomplished? Like, what does the world look like when you've solved this problem? And then finally, how? This is finally where you can talk about your product or your technology or your approach and how you're going to bring about this world. So you need this vision either at a company level or at a, at a product portfolio level. Um, and then you start to cascade this into each of the product teams. So each product team should then answer this who, what, why, when, and how. And the radical product thinking toolkit makes this easy because like when you start with a blank sheet of paper, it's super hard to answer these questions. Like we get stuck in finding the right words. So the radical product thinking approach gives you a fill in the blanks vision statement. And so this way you just focus on answering this as a group exercise and you compare answers and, you know, it helps you really figure out where you're aligned, not aligned. You do this as a group exercise for each product team. And so you write a vision for your product team and it tells you how it aligns with the uh, company vision. Um, and then, you know, when you're doing your strategic planning, for example, each team presents their vision in this format and then their strategy. And so when you're presenting your vision in this format and every team has the same format of a vision, it's so easy to look at these. It almost becomes like an API between teams where you can look at your vision statements and you're communicating better in terms of what you're working on and where you might be able to, you know, figure out what gaps there are between the, these, these different products. I love it. And I think it makes perfect sense. And I mean, I think the question is, do you, so people who are making these changes to their vision, right? Like, especially if it's a newer product, um, their, their vision may be, you know, not changing as much, but their strategy may be changing, right? Frequently. And how do you harmonize? Like, what is your recommendations for people keeping that API connectivity? I love that. It's a good way to think about it and making sure that they're reading actually current materials and that they're working off of that. Like, do you have any recommendations for people? Yeah, what you said about both vision and strategy, it's so important to go back and revise it. Uh, because, you know, let's say you're an early stage startup. If you're an early stage startup, you're learning so much every single month. You might actually, you know, realize that your vision was completely wrong. The who that you assumed at the beginning and what the problem they had, you thought it was, it ended up not being true at all. So then you revise all of this. You might end up having to look at this every month or perhaps every quarter or at least every six months as a very early stage startup. 
as a more mature product um, that's been around, maybe it's every six months or maybe every year that you revise this. Certainly every year as you do a strategic plan, you know, working through your vision and strategy and doing this exercise with your team is super helpful because things have changed in the market. You know, your competition has moved along, technologies have come along. It's so important to go back and revise this. And so this is true both for the vision and for the strategy. And you'll find that, you know, maybe your vision needs smaller tweaks, but maybe your strategy needs kind of larger tweaks, kind of the further down you go into granularity, the more the stuff changes. And the one other thing you asked earlier was you were asking about how do you use this for prioritization? Like, how do you actually make those decisions? So one of the most important things is, you know, when we have actually created the vision statement at this level of detail is we've created it at this level of detail so that it's actually going to be useful and functional for you to make everyday decisions. So how do you use this in everyday decisions? And this is where I was talking about the X and Y axis, right? So let's think about how we do, how we make decisions just using intuition. When I'm making a decision, I'm always trading off long-term against short-term, right? That's kind of intuitively what we do. And so when we think about what does that mean from a business perspective, we're thinking about the longer term vision against the short term needs of the business. It's like the yin and yang that you have to balance the long term versus short term. So for our team, you know, let's translate this yin and yang into X and Y axis so that so that they can see this two dimensional model. And so your X axis is your sorry, your Y axis is the vision statement and your x-axis is survival. And so now, things that are good for the vision and good for survival, um, then that's ideal. Those are the easy decisions. When I say survival, by the way, you have to also, just like you define what is your vision, you have to define survival. If you're a startup, survival is financial survival. Like if you don't get revenues, you're dead. Um, On the other hand, if you're a much bigger company, you know, even if you don't make money right away, like you have a, tr- a war chest to play with, at least a little bit. Maybe, you know, what your most immediate need for survival is stakeholder support, not necessarily financial, because if your stakeholders don't approve, they might decide to end your product. And so what's good for vision and survival is ideal, easy. The opposite of that is also easy. If it's bad for stakeholders and bad for the vision, nobody's asking for it. <laughs> the harder quadrants, are the ones where it's good for the vision, but stakeholders might not see the need for it, or maybe it doesn't bring in revenues right away. So that's the investing in the vision quadrant. An example of that is sometimes you need to fix technical debt. Sometimes you need to maybe uh, invest in training your team. That is investing in the vision because it's not helpful in the short term, but also important for the long term. You have to fight for this as a product manager. And the opposite of that is vision debt, which is where it's helping you in the short term. So it's good for survival. Maybe stakeholders are begging for this feature and maybe your internal stakeholders, uh, they're, they're happy because it's gonna bring in revenues. So maybe it's the custom features that they're asking for uh, that'll bring in that big deal that we were talking about earlier. So that's good for survival, but maybe it's not good for the vision. So you're building vision debt every time you do it. So as a team, you talk about all these features, where do they fit on these quadrants? And then you decide in what order you're gonna do this. 
But recognizing every time that you're taking on vision debt or when you're investing in the vision is so helpful for your team as a framework to help them understand how you make these decisions, how you're trading off vision versus survival. And it helps them think about what decisions they'll make even when you're not around as a product manager to guide every decision. Yes, which is so important for them having the autonomy to be able to run fast and execute, right? Because you you have, and you talk about that in the book, right? You can give them the actual clarity of where you want to go with the next context that they can figure out the traje- trajectory, right? And not need that guidance and handholding. Exactly. What you said about giving them enough autonomy, what you're really doing as a product person as you're, is that you're scaling your thinking And so that you don't have to be in every meeting, which really means that you're leveling up as a product person. You start to become, you know, from maybe a product manager, you're becoming more of a product leader. And, you know, you know that you've reached the highest levels of product management when you can get everyone to think like you, and then you can go off on a vacation and you know that they're they're in meetings without you and they're gonna make decisions thinking like you. Then, you know, you've achieved. Absolutely. Okay, good. That gives everybody here something to aspire for if they haven't reached that yet. (laughs) Um, Okay, so when I think about, uh, you know, communication around the vision and setting up and structuring the vision, uh, there was things that were important that you were calling out, right? So there's communication in a uniform way. Um, there's updating your visions and strategies regularly, um, more more frequently, depending on how early you are in your journey, um, and communicating them frequently, right? Otherwise, you can end up uh, with not having alignment across the different uh, teams. And then obviously, now you've just introduced the concept of kind of the trade-offs and the, the relationship between vision and survival and keeping that in check so you don't put on too much vision debt, which I really love that term. Um, is there anything else that we, you would say, you know, will contribute to the success or failure of somebody looking to implement this in their business uh, before we move on to other topics? One of the things that I find uh, happens often is, you know, we think that if I write this vision and I create my strategy, then I can just show this to my team and they will like nod along and say, yes, that's good vision. Let's just move on and we'll work on executing on that vision. I think what we often underestimate is the importance of getting people to actually internalize it. And that internalization doesn't just come from us as product people feeling like, you know, we're Moses, we come here with two tablets, I'm handing you my vision and strategy, and then everyone else just takes it. Like, you know, uh, that's a lot of hubris, right? So we have to kind of come down a notch from that and realize that, you know, even if you as a product manager, you sit down and you work through these really hard questions. And by the way, when I say who, what, why, when, and how, and I talk about this fill in the blanks template, this sounds easy. And I'm in fact gonna give you an example of this vision statement filled out just to give you um, uh, like this thought to work through, right? But you'll see that it sounds simple. And once you do this yourself, you realize that all of these are such profound questions that it takes you a long time to actually write the answers to it. And so the thought process you went to, to be able to create such a vision and internalize it, your team kind of needs to engage with those same questions, go through that same thought process. 
And so doing this as an exercise, uh, as a team is so important. And that's what I discover every time I do training for product teams, that this is not just for product managers to do, that I train entire product teams, including developers and uh, you know, scrum masters, whoever is part of that product team, because, and oh, it includes stakeholders too sometimes, because what you really need to do is get that sort of thought process and answering those hard questions altogether. So I'll give you the example of that vision statement that I was going to share. Okay, so here's how it would read for a startup that I had. So it says, today when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines that they're likely to like, they have to pick attractive looking wine bottles or find wines that are on sale. This is unacceptable because it leads to so many disappointments and it's hard to learn about wine this way. Uh, we envision a world where Finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies on Netflix. We are bringing about this world through a recommendations algorithm that gives you uh, wine recommendations based on your taste and uh, an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. And so the power of this vision, right, is that I hadn't told you anything about my startup and at the end of this vision, you knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it because it's detailed. You could like see the pain and you could see the solution to it. And that's what you want out of your vision statement. First of all, I need that app and I need to be able to feed it with all of my wines that I buy and love because I'm a huge wine drinker. I started my career in wine. <laughs> So it would be so nice to be able to input every time I'm traveling and be like, okay, I just had this amazing Barolo. This is what I like. And does this product exist? Can I go get this? Can you tell me about this? It doesn't exist. Uh, we sold our company back in 2014, but I hear that there's another company that's come up that's doing something similar. You need to send me this. Seriously, I need it. And I will be feeding their database with so much wine because I'm going to want to build my algorithm. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. Like one of the things about such a vision statement, its power is that when you say it out loud to someone who might be a customer, they should have the reaction just like you did. I need this, right? And so you can actually use this as a test for your vision statement. Write a vision statement like this and share it with your end customer. If they have a reaction like that, you know you're on the right track. It's so true. And actually, I think, you know, it's a really good tip for also picking what companies you're going to work for, because if you can, you know, we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast here thinking about obviously career development and how to pick the right places for the right product culture. Um, and I think one of the things you can do, like, you know, I, I know the company I'm at right now. One of the things that was super influential to me is when I described the product and the vision to people and everybody said, I need that. I want that. It was such a good sign for me. And I think for anyone listening, thinking if you're thinking about having, you know, taking a job, um, that's a really great way to test out whether or not it's going to be a fun and meaningful product to work on. Because if you don't get that reaction from anyone, it might be a sign that, you know, I don't know how either well they know about the problem they're solving or how it's going to make a material impact on, on that problem or uh, that it's something that's a big enough market to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so let's switch into talking a little bit about inclusive. Well, I think of it as like inclusive visions, but on, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on For the Love of Product is inclusive design, diversity of thought. You've already spoken a little bit about this, even when you were giving your examples about how if we didn't have the right people in the room feeding into different things, we might make choices that were misguided in terms of the user problem we're solving or the who, the why, the what, the how. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about this because I think this is an area that you're quite passionate about. Yeah, so one of the biggest things that is a mindset shift, I think, for product people is to realize that your product is affecting other humans uh, and they're and deeply affecting their lives. And so, you know, we need to think about our product as a mechanism to create the change we want for people. So when we think about it in this way, you know, and, and we recognize that we're affecting people's lives, then one of the next steps we need to think about is, you know, our role in product is almost like that of a doctor. You know, a doctor sees a problem and then they say to the patient, you know, you have this problem, take this pill, this is my solution to it and it's gonna fix it. At that point, they can't then say, oh, well, you know, what happens to you after you take that pill? Good luck uh, and Godspeed. Like you, you have to take responsibility for their well-being. And so in product, management, we take on that same role of a doctor. We're really saying, I see you as a user have this problem. Uh, I'm giving you this as a solution, this magic pill. We can't then turn around and say, you know, now if you're using it badly and it's causing you well-being issues, you know, then it's your problem. Really, there's this Hippocratic oath of product that we need to take where we're not doing harm to people. So what does that mean in reality? Like, how do you take this Hippocratic oath and put it in action? It means that when we think about our strategy, we have to bake equity into our strategy at every step. This isn't going to happen accidentally. You know, we I, I, I find that, you know, we often say, oh, this product had unintended consequences. Well, you know, sometimes we need to think about all these different personas who are going to be using our product and how it's affecting these products. And what was unintended ended up being unintended because we hadn't thought about all those personas. Very often, let's look at the example of Twitter or Facebook. You know, there have been people saying for a long time that people who are marginalized are going to have issues with this product. They're going to get uh, bullied or trolled. That, that had been said for a long time. It's just that we didn't hear it as a society, right? And so what, what does it mean to bake equity into your solution? So let's talk about strategy and what that means. In the radical product thinking way, strategy has four steps. It means thinking, and the easy to remember mnemonic is radical or RDCL. The R is for real pain points, meaning understanding what's the pain that, that makes someone come to your product. The D is the design or the solution for that pain. The C is the capabilities. This is maybe the underlying infrastructure, the technical infrastructure, IP that you have, uh, partnerships that you're building. And the last thing is logistics. This is where you think about the business model, how you're going to sell the product, um, how you might train, it's, uh, train people on it, et cetera. So now, if I think about how do you bake equity into your strategy, when you think about real pain points, this is where you think about different personas. Think about, are you including marginalized personas within your user research group? Because sometimes we forget how it's going to affect different groups of people. When you think about your design, 
thinking about, are you being inclusive in your solution? Maybe this product is going to work really well for certain personas, and maybe it really destroys life for other personas. Are you thinking about it from that inclusive perspective? Um, Another element of inclusivity is also thinking about accessibility, but I don't just want people to think about accessibility from that perspective, like thinking about inclusivity in terms of solving pain points in a more holistic way. When we think about capabilities, you know, I mentioned thinking about uh, your IP or technical infrastructure partnerships. That's where you think about, you know, are we being colonialist or extractive? Like if you create IP, there are so many companies that go to India, for example, they patent some of the local formulations that, that are Ayurvedic formulations. But then, you know, the community doesn't get any results from it, right? Like, um, and, and Indian drug manufacturers may not be able to use it. Like, thinking about that, like that's extractive. And then lastly, if we think about business models, you know, again, thinking about is your business model preserving systemic oppression or is it actually helping these different tiers? How does it affect these different, uh, let's say tiers of personas, et cetera, that you're thinking about? So those are the uh, four elements of strategy and how we can really bake equity into it. And we have to be thoughtful about it as product people. I love it. Can you give people an example of where you've seen someone do this really well or where you've seen someone do this not really well um, that that might be illustrative? Um, yes, let me start with an example where I find this is not done well. Uh, and then one that that where I do find this is done well. I have an issue with so many educational products. Let me think about. So when I think about uh, boys and girls being good at math, there are products that often work well for boys because they're recognized at being good at math. Whereas girls, even when they're good at math, they're hardly ever recognized. And a lot of the online tools don't well work well enough for girls. There's one example of a product, uh, Prodigy Game, that I talk about in the book, where you know my, son, my daughter and son, actually, they were both introduced to this game at school because it's for advanced math students. My son loved this game and my daughter hated this game. So different users, same game. One hates it, one loves it. So what's the deal? Turns out the game is all about battling Pokemon characters. And if you battle them, then you have to answer math question right to be able to battle and win. And so my son was loving this battling game. My daughter hated it. And so he was getting lots of math, math practice. The girls weren't. If you then look at the product and even how they uh, marketed it, even their market, marketing videos showed boys going, yes. And there's one boy saying, I learned all my math facts. Eight, nine times nine is 81. And then there's this girl. All the girls in the video are looking very sullen. No one's pumping fists going, yes, and smiling. They're looking very sullen. And then the girls in the marketing video, they go like, oh, I love this game. This has pretty shoes that you can collect and hats and this and that. And you're thinking, oh my God, like we're really creating a gender stereotypes. And we're not talking, we're not showing videos of these girls liking math for the sake of it, right? We're engaging with very different reasons and it's producing different results. So that's not creating equity in society. When you have a game that's used by 50 million people, and let's say just half of these are girls, so 25 million, and let's say half of those girls, less than half, 10 million girls, think that they're not as good at math as the boys in their class, that is not good for society. So 
this is one example where not thinking about equity creates change in society in a way that that's not appropriate. Whereas, you know, if you look at all of their metrics, all their metrics are showing great user engagement, et cetera, but do you break it down into seeing how it's affecting different people? Like this is where we need to think about equity systematically. Big time, yeah, big time. And one positive example that I wanna share is that of Lijat. This was an example I was truly so inspired by. Um, this is an organization that very few of us have ever heard of. It's an organization in India, but it's large. There are 45,000 women who work in this organization. And if you've tried papadams, papadams are the lentil crackers in Indian restaurants. You know, there's one company that dominates the papadam market and it's legit. They have over 60% market share, whereas the rest of the market share is split between tons of other companies. These um, these papadams are actually made by these 45,000 women who roll papadams at home. So what was the vision behind Lidja? The vision was that, you know, these women, they wanted to earn a dignified living. It was started by seven women in 1959. They wanted to earn a dignified living. They didn't want to depend on their husbands. They were from a really poor um, household. They were from poor households. And basically, um, you know, if they couldn't contribute to household income, they couldn't influence spending and they couldn't educate their kids. They really wanted to get their kids out of poverty. So the problem was they were not educated. So the only skill that they had was cooking. So they decided to make papadams, which are really hard to make, by the way. And, and like my grandmother knew how to make them. My mom doesn't know how to make it. And so these women decided to roll papadums and they sell them in stores and whatever profits or losses they got from selling it, they would split it equally amongst themselves. And so this is how they started in 1959. To date, this is their exact model. 45,000 women are equal partners in this organization. And when I think about strategy, like that is strategy designed for equity. It was based on understanding these women and their needs. So for example, these women had kids at home um, and like elderly people that they needed to take care of. So they couldn't go work in factories. So the whole legit model is that they roll papadams at home and yet they're known for quality. Why? Because these women really care about making sure that Lijat is successful because that's their bread and butter. And that's how they, they're all equal partners. This is how they make money. They treat it like a temple, but it's all based on understanding their needs. So Lijat does not work out of factories. It works out of women's homes. Then, you know, so the solution is also, by the way, partly that they give women um, wages for, ev for what they roll every single day. Why? Because this way they can go home and spend that money, influence spending, uh, and be able to educate their kids. So their whole business model is aligned with that. They don't give or take credit so that they have cash flow to be able to pay these women every day. Like if I think about every element of their strategy, it's aligned and really centered on what is the vision for change. And, you know, they're making money. It's a really profitable organization dominating the market for papadams, but it's centered in equity and thinking about what is needed to create the change that they envision. 
It's such an inspiring example. And I think we definitely need to provide details. I, I read about this um, in preparation and it's just an incredibly motivating example. So we'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can go and read a little bit more about this. Uh, you've done a great job giving them an idea of the story. Um, okay, so I, I think then it would be good to ask you, you've gone through, I mean, you talked a little bit about what happens when you don't bake equity into this. And you also referenced the fact that it can be built into a product, but actually a lot of these mechanics are built into systems and our society, right? And you've gone through the experience of, you know, fundraising, as we talked about in the beginning, four of the companies that have had events, two of them you founded yourself. Can you talk to us a little bit, because we have a lot of people who listen to the show who are not only on the product leader side, but actually the founders of uh, product-led businesses. Can you talk to us a little bit about advice that you have for other founders or leaders, um, maybe specifically those who are underrepresented, things that you've learned along the way that you wish you had known earlier? Uh, yeah, that is, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, so here are maybe two things that I've been thinking about for a long time. So one is, you know, as um, as, uh, as a person of color uh, or, you know, an underrepresented group, one of the things that you kind of have to fundamentally realize is that maybe the bar is a little bit higher in terms of what you need to be able to get funding. And that was one of my experiences. Um, when I was running my startup, you know, um, by the way, I'd never thought about all these differences in terms of gender pay, et cetera. I was young and naive when I was doing my startup. And I never thought about these differences until it really hit me in the face because, you know, a lot of my male peers were getting funding and no matter kind of how hard I tried, I was not seeing, I, I was not seeing the same results in terms of being able to get VC funding. People who knew me like angel investors were willing to fund. And herein lies a big difference. Like if we think about just the amount of funding that goes, VC funding that goes to women, it's less than 2%. And then you look at, you know, what percentage of that goes to uh, people of color, it's a dismal percentage. I think black women get like 0.06% of VC funding or something like that. But one of the main realizations is, you know, you cannot internalize failure that, you know, everyone tells you, you know, just if you work hard enough that you're going to succeed. One of the biggest things I will say that is not said often is you cannot internalize failure. Um, that it's important to learn a lot from everything that uh, you're, to analyze your mistakes, learn from it, do better. But if you don't succeed, you know, you realize that it's not just you. There are some systemic issues um, that sometimes are very hard to get across. What can you do as um, someone in the minority? You know, it doesn't mean you give up by any means, right? Like we have to really um, have a voice. And a lot of what I talk about in terms of having this clarity of vision, having this clear strategy, how you're able to communicate vision versus survival, being able to talk through all of this and to be heard, that's the most um, all of these tools are things that I've developed my, for myself to, um, to really be heard um, and, and so that we can communicate this more easily. Um, and so find 
try to use these tools, find ways so that you can be heard and you're able to show this vision and strategy, et cetera, at that level of clarity. And that in itself is such a rare skill. I find this very rare, whether in product people or founders. And so you'll really be setting yourself apart if you can do that. Fantastic advice. Fantastic advice. Well, we're coming to that time of the show where I always ask a question. However, I think you may have already answered it. So we'll see. Um, we love to ask people if there is a museum dedicated to um, the world's most important products. So they don't have to be the most successful in terms of, you know, uh, success metrics. They could be important because they taught us something, right? Um, however, I would like to know what product you think should be in the museum or why. And the reason why I said you may have answered already it was because the chat example was so inspiring maybe that should be in the museum but if not uh is that it is that what you think should be there or do you think there's something else um i'll mention three products so the first one is definitely legit to me um and and because of just how well equity is baked into every step that is one the second product i'll mention is um one by margaret hamilton um, you know, so Margaret Hamilton is the person who really founded, she coined the term software engineering. She really thought about software as her product to be able to, she worked on the NASA moon landing and uh, her software really saved the landing. And I talk about in the talk about that in the book, but the level of vision that it took to land that module on the moon in 1969, like that time frame and the kind of computers we had back then and think about how little memory, that's like a miracle in itself. And so that definitely belongs, that as a product belongs in, in a museum. And the third one that I really want to share is um, that of Claudette Colvin. And that I'll leave as an example for us to be inspired by where you know, Claudette Colvin is someone that we don't hear about in history. Uh, her, her contribution to the civil rights movement is often forgotten. She was one of the first people who was arrested for the uh, for defying the bus segregation laws in Alabama. Um, and, you know, if you think about her vision, like I asked her, she was 15 years old when she was arrested. I asked her, how at 15 did you not listen to the bus driver and just give up your seat? Um, and she felt like she had a vision. She had a vision that she wanted to see the same American dream for all, that everyone could participate in it. And she was tired of adults talking about it and not doing anything about it. And that's what made her like, you know, not give up her seat because of that vision. But most importantly, not just that she had this vision, but she translated that into her priorities. She invested in the vision because she was one of the four plaintiffs who, uh, whose uh, testimony at the Supreme Court trial, it overturned segregation on buses and it was a landmark case uh, for the civil rights movement. So her product was creating change through her actions uh, and it was her personal, personal actions. Um, and so I, that to me belongs in the museum as well as a product. Like these three examples give you very different examples of products, but it really makes you think about everything we do can be a product. It's how you create change in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Very inspiring on, on that. And I actually remember reading, I think last year that she is fighting to have her, um, her, uh, um, arrest record expunged um, at this point. Uh, so that, I mean, I don't know what's happened with that, but I, I feel like I remember hearing that. 
You're exactly right. And it was expunged. So I'm really thrilled oh. about that. And one of the most rewarding things for me is I have a picture of Claudette Colvin holding my book, which was a oh. dream come true for me. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. That's an amazing place to end. Uh, what inspirational lessons you've shared with us today, Radhika. Thank you for the time. Thank you for all the energy you put into creating the toolkit, which is available online and we'll put in the show notes, but also for writing the book um, so that people can go out and create meaningful change through their products. Um, it's been a pleasure to hear, hear your background. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.